0: a conversation between adults about sex-forward relationships, kinky lifestyles, and frank communication. If you're under 18, please stop listening and visit scarletteen.com. I'm Lady Petra. My pronouns are she, her, and hers.
1: I'm Saffir Master. My pronouns are him his and he.
0: And this is Kinky Cocktail Hour. Cheers. Cheers!
1: Okay, what are we drinking today?
0: Well, today we're trying an Oregon brewery from Tillamook, okay. which is close to where we were for your birthday. Yeah. In your can Beach, And it's called Head Out American Style Hefeweizen Ale. Okay, good. Okay. And I thought I'd give you some information. It's 4.8 ABV, so it's okay. not just 3%. So, okay, it, that's so it's good. different. That's interesting to know. Yeah. Inspired by our home in the Pacific Northwest, this beer celebrates the journey over to the destination. Enjoy our bright and refreshing wheat ale with subtle nuances of light malt sweetness and juicy hop character.
1: Interesting to see. Yeah. You know what? That needs to sit a bit. It's a little fizzy for my taste.
0: It's fizzy, but I definitely got the citrusy.
1: But it's tasty. Mm-hmm. It's got a nice finish, a little hopsy finish. Mm-hmm. It's quite flavorful. Yeah. I would say that it's wider than deep. It's like a not a very...
0: It's not complex. doesn't
1: leave you with a very complex mm-hmm. like, mouthfeel at the end. Mm-hmm. I just think it's got to just aerate a little bit yeah. to see if it can get rid of some of those bubbles. Yeah. I didn't realize I was so offended by bubbles.
0: The Right kind of bubbles, these if you notice, these aren't super fine. No, they're kind of a brace of scratchy bubbles, yeah. so that's why because it hits my tongue and the palate, yeah, and it disrupts my ability to have flavor taste, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: But it's cold, it feels good. Mm-hmm. What I'm contemplating is how, I like, hefeweizen compared oh. to the pilsners, oh, compared to the IPAs, like, which one sort of lands for me in the best way you know sometimes
0: yeah i think you're right because we had it was the anger ipa right anger ipa and the anger no we had an
1: anger pilsner oh pilsner. And An anger hefeweizen
0: yeah and the ipa was
1: i, I don't remember notes i know <laughs> we've had so many we've had so many yeah but there was definitely one of the ipas that we really liked yeah i think it was one of the Danish ones, import. or the Norwegian one, I think. It was an import. I think it was Danish. I think, Danish, I think
0: you're yeah. right. Yeah.
1: It was really good. But still, my point being, I don't know which one I like best of all. Because mm-hmm. I know they, you know, different situations, different beers. Right. But I do feel like one of them just is just easier to drink for me. Yeah. Like my well, flavor profile. Like
0: to just drink con- and like hot summer day and just yeah. to drink. I mean, a pilsner is it's great, delightful, yeah, because it goes
1: down like IPAs water. are great.
0: Like, I, right have, I, I think the Einer for flavor is super great, but if yeah. I am just looking for something to sit outside and quench my thirst on a hot day, like the Car- Carlsberg was really good.
1: Mm-hmm. I think this is really good. This mm-hmm. is lovely, just a little bit fizzy for my taste. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, com- you know? especially compared to yesterday's. Yeah,
1: I thought yesterday's was like mm-hmm. top notch too. Yeah,
0: I really did like it.
1: Very excited to have Janet Hardy on our conversation today. (laughs) We read The Ethical Slut together when we first got together back three years ago, Mm -hmm. and it made a big impact on us. It did, for me especially. For you especially. Because
0: I had to learn to own the word slut. Right,
1: Right, exactly, as an example. But Janet has way more to talk about. So first of all, Janet, welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much for having me here. It's my pleasure. So, Janet, we normally begin our conversation by inviting you to share your own journey in sexuality. So why don't you, you know, tell us what your experience has been like through the years of your sexual experience? All right. Um, I am probably from a generation before
2: many of your guests, which means that I spent the first roughly 30 years of my life thinking that I was the only person in the world who got turned on thinking about spanking. Uh, because I had no exposure to anything else back then. There, you know, certainly no movies, no TV. And I really didn't even have access to magazines. Um, Penthouse Variations was the best I could do. And I I didn't discover that for a while. So my journey started fairly late, not because I hadn't always wanted that, but because I didn't know it was a thing that I was allowed to want for a very long time, or that that I was allowed to have. I knew I was allowed to want it. But by the time I figured all that out, I was married, living in a heterosexual monogamous relationship with two kids in a California city. And then I had to figure out how to get from there to here, which, you know, I started out like so many new kinksters do. I cheated because I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't tell whether my desire for kink was an itch that would disappear once I scratched it. And then I scratched it some and realized, no, this isn't going to go away. And I think if my husband and I had had something like the ethical slut, we might still be together in an open relationship. But we didn't know how. There was nobody to guide us through that. So we parted as friends and remained friends. And I began exploring first in my town of Sacramento. And then later I found the Bay Area kink scene and wound up moving to the Bay area because I couldn't imagine not having that once I'd found it, I needed to have a lot of it. So I moved to the Bay area. I came out into kink while I was still in Sacramento, um, played with a variety of people, mostly men at that point, one woman, then met my former partner, Jay Wiseman, who you may have also had on the show at some point and moved to San Francisco to be with him. And, uh, I was working in advertising at the time. I was an advertising copywriter for the first decade of my work life. And the agency I was working for in Silicon Valley listened into my personal phone calls and didn't want someone like me working there and fired me in a rather Machiavellian way. And there we were. Neither of us had any income. Jay had the manuscript for SM 101 that he'd been working on for years. And I had an article that I had written hoping I could sell it to Cosmopolitan about how to be a novice, sexually dominant woman. Cosmopolitan at the time, of course, wasn't taking anything like that. They rejected it. I rewrote it, turned it into a handout for a class I'd been asked to teach for novice, dominant women and their partners. And it just kept growing uh, until it became the length of a small book and became The Sexually Dominant Woman, a workbook for Nervous Beginners, which was my first book in 1992. So we brought that out and brought out SM-101 as well in quick printed editions with comb bindings, just selling them to a handful of leather stores and erotic boutiques around the Bay Area. And it all grew from there. I had come into the scene as a heterosexual top. I eventually discovered I was, in fact, a bisexual switch. Jay and I were together for 13 years, having a lot of fun. And... It all just grew from there. First, we published my books and his books, and then Dossie and I met, and we did the bottoming book and the topping book together, and we published those. And then I started getting books from outside authors, and you know, fast forward, I ran the place for twenty-seven years, sold it a couple of years ago, and uh, that's up to now. I'm semi-retired. I'm still work. I'm working on another book, and I haven't been part of the scene for a very long time, which is a whole other story. But, you know, my fantasies are what they've always been. And my heart is in the kink community, even if I'm not an active practitioner.
0: Oh, that's amazing. It's really, truly, really, I've Where, got chill bumps.
1: Yeah. You know, you're right. You can't unsee kink, no. you know, as a, an experience when you've seen it and experienced it. It really, for us, it's like completely intertwined in our sexuality and it's really like that.
2: Well, even more than that, once you begin thinking about power relationships as negotiable, then the rest of the world stops making quite as much sense. It's, it's more than just a kink or a, even a sexuality, it's a paradigm. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm interested. You know, for us, our access to you was through the Ethical Slut. So, are the other books that you've published available widely? Are they in print? Uh, they
2: are all in print currently, except I think Radical Ecstasy, which is still available as an ebook. And it might be that 21st Century Kinky Crafts is also just an ebook at this point. I frankly don't pay too much attention to some of the older books. The Sexually Dominant Woman is now out in an illustrated form that I did the drawings for, and it's called The Illustrated Sexually Dominant Woman. The topping book and the bottoming book have become the new topping book and the new bottoming book but other than that oh and the complete spanker became spanking with lovers because life goes on
0: yeah, i love it
1: absolutely it's so fantastic you know for us our conversation around your work began with the ethical slut because we were dabbling in polyamory and the ethical slut as a volume is really in some ways the beginning of the polyamorous experience is you know how did that all work out from your perspective
2: Well, the backstory on The Ethical Slut, and, you know, it's not surprising to me that it's the one that you guys connected with, because it has outsold everything I've ever written, put together by a factor of probably 10 at this point. But it got started. We had written the bottoming book and the topping book. This is me and my dear co-author, Dossie Easton. And we were getting asked to do some speaking about that. And one of the speaking engagements we were asked to do was at a Mensa gathering, believe it or not, in Asilomar. And so we were at this Mensa gathering and we wound up giving a sort of basic kink talk. And if you've read Dossie's in my work, you know, we usually write from our personal experiences and we interweave a lot of our personal stuff into our books. So we were there at Asilomar, Dossie went home because it was just too heterosexual and she was driving, it was making her crazy, but I stuck around. Uh, and I read, there was a hot tub gathering that night and I ran into a friend of mine outside the hot tubs and she said, you should have heard the conversation in my hot tub. And I said, well, okay, I'll bite. What was the conversation in your hot tub? And she said, it was, did you hear about that SM talk? Those two women were doing this morning. It was two women talking about stuff they had done together. And one of their boyfriends was right in the room. Uh, so that kind of made it clear to us that, We only thought we'd been shocking when we wrote the outrageous BDSM books that, in fact, what really shocked people was non-monogamy. And Dossie, of course, is a therapist and had been working with alternative relationship clients for some years already. And so we just wrote from our own experience and the experience of her clients and a lot of the reading and talking we've done through the years. And that was the first edition of The Ethical Slut, which was 1997. So
0: funny. Yeah. In fact, when I was beginning my journey about three years ago in finding my own sexual expression, one of the things I did was I researched therapists in the greater Seattle area who were kink friendly or conscious. And I ended up, landing upon this therapist who was, I didn't know at the time through conversations, I found out after I interviewed him that he was a dominant. So I knew immediately he'd get what I was going to try to explain about this dynamic that I was trying to get into that I had never, ever experienced before. And I remember the conversation when I first went to his office that he, and we, we had already been together for a while at this point, yeah. Safra and I, and he, hands me the ethical slut and says, you have to read this. And I said, well, I am reading that. (laughs) And he's like taken aback. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) But I was taken by kind of his reverence for the, for the book to allow me a space to, mm, I guess, play catch up in my own head so that my conversations would be more meaningful and more work could be done in our sessions. And it was helpful.
2: Yeah, it's tremendously so. I think what happens to a lot of poly folk and kinksters when they go into therapy is they wind up paying for the privilege of educating their therapists. So if you can find one who's already knowledgeable and positive about alternative sexualities and relationships, you're way ahead of the game. So good on you for finding the right guy. It's getting easier than it used to be. Oh, for sure. Oh, I bet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, one of the things that, jumped out at me from the books that I've read in the world of polyamory is that it really comes down to communication. And we like to say our kink is communication. And so I'm wondering, you know, you've got a world of experience in interacting with both kink world and the poly world. What's your best advice for people who are maybe getting started in a kink dynamic or getting started in a poly dynamic? What's your best advice for them?
2: My best advice for them is you will fuck up. That is inevitable. We're all hacking our way through the undergrowth that very few people have tamped the grass down for us. And we're in there with our machetes, you're going to fuck up. (laughs) We all grew up in a very, very monogamy centrist world. So all our examples from television and movies and books of what a relationship is supposed to look like are not the way our relationships look. And Sometimes you're going to assume something about the nature of your relationship that turns out not to be true. Sometimes you're going to get so caught up in the moment that you do something that sounds good, whether or not it's really going to be good in terms of the relationship dynamic. So going into it, just recognize that mistakes will be made and be prepared to talk them over, learn from them and move on. Because once you've made them, you can't change them. All you can do is learn from them.
1: That's smart. So one of the things that I've been contemplating, mostly because we're deeply into our kink dynamic and mostly because you know we live in a very kink forward, sex forward relationship, the power dynamic is very powerful between us. And we have talked about, should we open up our dynamic or shouldn't we? And there's really no space for another human being in it, if that makes sense. I'm wondering what your consideration is with your point of view on how to blend kink and poly relationships. One thing I should mention up front
2: is that I am primarily a sensation player and a role player, so I don't do lifestyle relationships. They hold no draw for me whatsoever and never have. So my path in that one is simpler than yours is. If you're engaging in a heavy power dynamic, then you've got a lot more issues to work out. And I can't tell you what those are, A, because they're yours, not mine, and B, because frankly, I have very little hands-on experience with that situation. When I was with Jay, he did. He had some long-term power relationships going in addition to his and my relationship. And so I was able to see some of what might go down in a situation like that. But it's really outside my field of expertise.
1: Fair enough. I don't know that there's a right answer to it. It's just- a, I, don't, uh,
0: I don't think there is. I no, there is. There is.
1: Yeah. I think it's really just a matter of people finding the, the ways that they can relate that's workable for each other. So I'm interested to know of the kink books you've written, which is the most well-received and how do people find it?
2: In terms of sales, the bottoming book and the topping book are by far the bestsellers of, of our kink books. And they've been around for many years. We've done one or two rewrites, and they're, they're still really strong books. They still work really well. Our baby is Radical Ecstasy, which we wrote about transcendence and ecstatic experiences in kink and how we've gotten there and how other people can maybe try to get there, which has an extremely devoted following of very few people. It's narrow and deep rather than widespread, like the bottoming book and the topping book. But of the kink books, I would say it's my favorite, and I suspect it's Stassi's as well. And then my memoir, *Impervious*, which came out a year or two back, I love it to death, and you know, it sold very few copies, but I still love it to death.
0: The book that you're referencing, *The Transcendence*. Yes, radical ecstasy. Yeah, that speaks to me just the title alone, because on our journey, I mean the the whole point of this podcast that we've started was to go in the rabbit hole together and and discover our sexual interests together through these discussions that we'd have or interviewing people yeah and it's been a fantastic so far fantastic eye-opening journey but what we've experienced in our dynamic is beyond anything I've ever experienced in a sexual nature it's an energetic we were talking to some psychologists on an interview last week or the, earlier this week, and it's they they were referencing that it sounded somewhat tantric, although we're not following any of the tantric processes. It's the power exchange itself that has gotten so refined. I can drop into subspace so quickly, and then he'll go into dom space, and then it becomes there's points where we're one creature. Yeah it's, and I, how do I explain that to people? I'm like, it's it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's an
2: ecstatic experience. And Dossi and I did study a fair amount of Tantra while we were working on radical ecstasy. And it became quite clear to us from the beginning that these people and we were climbing the same pyramid, just up different sides. And when you get to the top of the pyramid, it's all one thing. You achieve an altered state of consciousness that is deeply connected and deeply Spiritual, if that's the way you frame things, or transcendent, or ecstatic, or bliss, or whatever you want to call it, I think most people who have been playing for a while and playing kind of deep, they're going to get there eventually. I know very few people who have been in the scene for a double-digit number of years who don't know what I'm talking about when I say ecstatic experience in BDSM.
1: Yeah, it's for us. It's such a it's such an interesting experience because it's really occurring at this point. With easy access on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, because we're, we've developed a daily maintenance spanking scene, if you will, that's not our high protocol. Yeah. And it's ha- it used to happen really in our high protocols. Right. And now it's happening anytime we're scening. Right. And yeah. uh, to have access to that, that energetic unification is just, I mean, it's addictive. I, that's what it is. It's addictive.
2: Yeah, it is. I do want to say that the reason I am not actively involved in kink or indeed in sex anymore has to do with an experience of that kind. During a Tantra class, I lost my boundaries. I, I It's what Tantra people call a Kundalini awakening. Basically, we were doing a fairly ordinary little, you know, sitting in yab yam and undulating and locking gaze and so on. This was Dossie and me. And I just tipped over backwards and arched up on my head and feet, uh, which you could offer me $2 million right now, and I would not be able to do that. But I did, and with Dossie sitting astride me, because she didn't see what was happening in, in time to scramble off. And I was shrieking at the top of my lungs like a fire whistle, and I couldn't figure out how to get out. I was... Eventually I did, you know, the body just can't maintain that. And eventually it stopped. But for years after that, I was prone to falling into that ecstatic orgasmic state involuntarily. Wow. Um, wow! Yeah. I had to work my way through that very slowly. I, I feel safe about it now, but I didn't for a long time. Wow. Wow. The answer for me was taking up an ecstatic dance which, fortunately, Eugene being the old hippie town that it is, until COVID, we had plenty of ecstatic dance available. And it was a chance for me to do embodied spiritual practice in a low risk environment where, you know, I could let the energy come up and I could shriek because the music was loud and everybody was making noise and nobody cared. And so I was able to practice bringing it up and pushing it down until I felt like I was in good control of it again. And so now I don't have those those uh, involuntary ecstatic experiences anymore. But it was really scary. Wow. So I, I like to put that out there as a caveat.
0: When you had that experience, uh, uh, you know, you, it sounds like you had more, different times you had this. Um, but how did it leave you afterwards? Like, was it a sub drop kind of thing? Or how did you recover?
2: Poorly. I feel some bitterness about the way my Tantra teacher handled it because she, I think, did not recognize what had happened. And she just looked at me and told me to ground, which means nothing. I mean, I know how to ground, it didn't help. From what I have read since by other people who have gone through things like that, I sort of involuntarily or instinctively wound up doing um, the right things, which were to get out into nature more, like maybe to move out of the Bay Area and move to Eugene, and to do things that Put me in my body. Eat heavier meals. Be outdoors. Put my feet on dirt. Those things—they do help. Somebody should have been there to tell me that, and nobody was. So, partly because Dossie and I had a book deadline we were working on, because the tantra classes were all part of our process on radical ecstasy, I had to delve right back into that really exaggerated sexual and spiritual process that we were doing in the writing of that book. So that was a mistake from my point of view. You know, you have to, when you're an author, it's how you make your money. But it was not good for my process.
1: Wow. Crazy.
0: That's that's an amazing share. So with that caveat.
1: Yes. What are the processes that give people access to that ecstasy that you're writing about?
2: It's almost, I, I, the analogy I, I kind of draw is female ejaculation, where you have to learn how not to hold on to things. To learn to ejaculate, most women, when they feel themselves coming close to orgasm, they tend to squinch up, tighten everything. And to let it go, you have to not tighten everything. You have to relax everything. And I think that's pretty close. It, it's kind of instinctive when things get intense to make yourself hard against it, you know, protect yourself against it. And instead, if you let go and relax into it, that's when the good stuff starts to happen. In particular, I think there's a trick, and you shouldn't try this right away. It's not a good thing for a beginner. But as you get better, knowing where your limits are and intentionally allowing people to push them. There's a moment when you feel like you ought to say word it because it's too much. And if you don't, what may happen next is that extraordinary experience.
0: Many things are going through my head right now, but one of those things that of not letting go, or letting go, which was huge, and I think Stafford recognizes this, but I don't think he fully grasped it because he didn't live my life. So I was in a let's just say a very bad thirty-year marriage. And was told, well, I, you know, and I got married young. So I was in those years of you really getting married too young and getting married and not knowing your own sexual nature. And so here I am being expressive quite early in my marriage. And I would make sounds, which I think people make sounds during sex. I mean, that's what I thought. And I remember being shushed and told, don't, don't do that. And I remember then shushing and like bearing down and shushing and from that moment my sexuality went completely inward like like put away in a box so then it just became an act i was going through the motions on that's one thing that i I'm, I'm hearing when i'm listening to you the other thing about the whole pushing the limits you know saffer's a sadist so caning's his thing and i remember early on when i was not used to being caned <laughs> and he would cane me for whatever and read my signs and then back off as he needed or chose to. But when he gave me the power to say, cane me again, it changed everything. Like it changed everything on how I experienced caning as well as the experience of the scene. Like I all of a sudden had access to this ecstasy that you're speaking to that I didn't even know existed. Scene
2: where I had what I would call the edges of an ecstatic experience was also a caning scene. Uh, it was with a long term partner, and he had been doing what I've heard called California style, where he was just going whip, 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 whip with the cane all over my butt. So there's lots of sting, but not much depth. And I was, you know, writhing and heaping and so on. And then he stopped and he was going to put the cane away. And I said, Before you do that, can I ask for something? He said, sure. I said, could you hit me with that once as hard as you can? And he looked at me like I was insane, which is a thing you get used to. (laughs) And he said, okay. And he did. Um, He pulled it up in both hands, and he's a big guy, and brought it down on my ass with all his strength, and it was magic. It was the ripples would spread out. You know, it started in my ass, but then I felt it in my cunt and in my tits and in my face and in my fingertips, all in ripples. And it was perfect. It was what I wanted. It was what was right. And so then we had to do that 40 or 50 more times because, you know, there it is. So the next day, my ass was a mess because I wasn't conditioned for that kind of thing. But, oh, my God, I was so happy. It felt so good.
1: That's amazing. It really is. It really is. No, it's really true. You know, the the one thing that I keyed in on when you were speaking earlier was this idea of letting go. I have been playing with orgasm control. And what's happened for me is as a impact of really focusing on completely relaxing through the process. I'm having these really prolonged, voluminous orgasms that I've never experienced before. It's quite remarkable that it happens on this side of that conversation as well. Yeah. 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 I think that the advice for men who
2: want to have an ecstatic experience along the way is what you're saying. Most men, you know, they tend to sort of grunt and squinch and their faces get all squinched up and their fists get all squinched up because that's how you ejaculate. I guess, but that may not be how you orgasm. I think relatively few men are taught to recognize orgasm in the absence of ejaculation, and so I think it's it's worth get going for, because you can have so much, so many more of them that way, if for no other reason, and also because it's it, it's in a deeper place.
1: That's true, and you know the combination of prostate massage along with yeah. that has really created this sense of multiple male orgasm for me as well. So it's been quite remarkable and really interesting, actually, as an experience to explore. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I
2: sort of envy that ejaculation thing because I didn't come to ejaculating until I was in my 40s. And even then, it for me, it's entirely separate from orgasm. I can ejaculate without orgasming. I can orgasm without ejaculating. And as a result, I don't much like to ejaculate. It makes a big mess, and it's not all that much fun for me. And I think that may be true for a lot more men than than recognize it. Probably so, yeah. Because they're used to pairing their orgasm with their ejaculation. They don't try anything different.
1: That's right. I agree. We've talked to some dominatrixes who have their submissives in cages, and they're experiencing orgasm without, or ejaculation without orgasm some of these bands
2: yeah it doesn't sound like much fun really to me (laughs) and i'm getting that's sort of the point i guess
1: right well janet this has been fascinating i really
0: really (laughs) i
1: really appreciate you taking time to come on our show and chat with us it's been first of all we really appreciate the work that you've done and i look forward to reading more of the work that you've done now that you've mentioned it yeah really and it's changed my life it really has I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, and we encourage people to pick up your books and to explore their sexuality with an open mindset.
0: And I'll have to say, I remember reading the book "Ethical Slut," and you know, I had the connotation of slut, obviously the traditional connotation, in my head. And where I am now, let's flash forward. We were just interviewed, like I said, with some psychologists uh, this earlier this week, and I'm like talking you know, sharing my journey. I'm like, yeah, and I'm his three whole slut and I'm this and that. And it's, for me, it's, it's matter of fact, it's who I am. I embrace it. I own it. Yeah.
2: It's neither an insult nor a compliment. It's just a thing.
0: It's just a thing. It's what's so, and that is pivotal in showing where I've been. Like, I just look at that and go, wow, look at that. Yeah. Look where I've been. Yeah. So thank you so much. I'm glad.
1: Thanks so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Anytime.
0: Okay.